Welcome back to Vampires Never Get Old, a podcast about vampires and literature. I am your host, Zoraida Cordova. And I'm Natalie C. Parker. And today we are joined by with a very special guest, uh, Samira Ahmed. Hi, you guys. I'm so happy to be on with you. Um, I'm Samira Ahmed. A lot of people might not associate me with vampires, but today you will <laughs> learn why you maybe should. Um, I have written three books, Love, Hate, and Other Filters, Internment, and my most recent book was Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know. And um, I am thrilled to be part of the Vampires Never Get Old anthology because there's just not enough busy vampires. I'm glad I could write one and have a tarot card <laughs> with busy vampires, which looks fabulous, by the way. Yay. Yeah. We We're love so it. We love the whole deck. It. It's so amazing. Thank you guys for asking me to be part of this. Absolutely. I think that we we wanted this anthology to sort of surprise people uh, and so have them say like, oh, I, I definitely understand, you know, uh, the fantasy authors writing vampires, but look at these contemporary authors who are, and, and also you write a little bit of speculative fiction. So right. it's not such a stretch, but it's not something that, perhaps your your fans know you for right away. And so that's what I think is going to be so wonderful when people pick this up and are like, oh, look at all the things that Samira can do. I was so excited when I got your email asking about it. I immediately was like, in my mind, yes, I'm going to do this. And then I was like, what, what vampire thing am I going <laughs> to write about? And then I was like, I had this idea. And you guys were like, yes, write a story in second person. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Which was so weird and different for me. And I was like, I might as well try a bunch of different things. So that was exciting. And it is such an exciting story. And we are so excited to talk to you um, in particular today about your favorite, or shall I say problematic fave. Problematic. Um, Every vampire is a problematic fave, though, I just want to say. This is very true. Um, Spike, perhaps has his own little piece of that territory of problematic favorite. Um, But we're going to talk about specifically season two of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And for those who don't know about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'm not sure who you are, but if you do exist, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer started off as a movie, which then turned into a television show in the early 90s. Um, The television show kicked off in 1996 or 1995. Um, And it is about a teenage girl who belongs to a long line of slayers, of vampires, and um, in each generation there can only be one, although we learn that that rule is quickly bent in the Buffyverse. Um, And so it is about her, uh, primarily her experience living on a hellmouth in Sunnydale, California. um, Because high school is hell. (laughs) Because high school is hell. The metaphor is a metaphor. And then she goes to college and things get even worse and more complicated. But um, in season two, we are introduced to a very specific perox, per, how do you say this? Peroxided villain um, named Spike. And he comes to town with uh, his girl, Drusilla. And they have a very special, <laughs> a special agenda that doesn't actually involve Buffy until it does because it involves Angel, who is Buffy's 
vampire boyfriend who also has his soul. So he's a good one. I um, love explaining this to people. Like, okay, but in this I, I just version, love the, the word they use, ensouled. Like, they, there's two ensouled. Okay, there's going to be spoilers now. I mean, Buffy, I, I just looked this up. It's 97, 2003. I feel like spoilers are okay. Right? In 20-something yes. years, we're fine. Okay, correct. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just want to put that out there in case. But I love the term ensouled, um, though I have to say that it's very different for both Spike and Angel. I love the Spike intro, and I love Drusilla. Their relationship is bananas. <laughs> Absolutely bananas. Okay, so let's talk about that first episode where we get Spike and Drusilla coming to town. They run over the Welcome to Sunnydale sign. It's that iconic image um, that gets repeated, like, basically every time Spike returns to I town. I know. I love that, too. It's just the same theme. Well, it's just so, I mean, he. the thing I love is he literally crashes onto the scene. Yes. And um, he's there and he's so, so I was in my twenties when Buffy came out um, and he immediately appealed to like my Billy Idol loving heart because he is so Billy Idol-esque. And I just want to point out that even his name, which is William the Bloody, William, because Billy Idol's real name is William Broad or something. I think it's William Broad. And the idol came from what a high school teacher used to call him because he was so idle. He was an idle kid, an I-D-L-E kid. And then they did a play on words, idle, idle. So and he became a rock idol. But William the Bloody, <laughs> Spike's nickname, the Bloody actually comes from originally how bloody awful his poetry was. Mm-hmm. And then the second meaning of it comes into his bloody reign as a terrible vampire. Yeah. Um, and he, so I'm and maybe reading into a lot of this stuff, but yeah, I just, I was an English teacher. So I'm like, every single thing is a symbol. And they also had this Sid and Nancy-esque relationship. Um, Sid Vicious uh, and Nancy, oh God, I forgot her last name, Spurgeon, I think. Um, and I love that sort of, that whole punk rock, rock and roll vibe, totally destructive, bad relationship. <laughs> that they have. I, there's a moment where, because he shows up into town and he is his, he's a foil to Angel, of course, right. in so many ways. But there's a moment where he and Drusilla are in front of the the chosen that kid that that's like the the anointed yeah, the anointed yeah. one, and they she she like cuts his face, licks his blood off his face, I know, and then they kiss with his. The- like she doesn't even blood. swallow his blood. No, I know. She I just, know. I, when I watched it, I was also like sort of, I was surprised at how sort of graphic some of the scenes were. Yeah. And I was and like, so, but the 90s more graphic than now? It sort of feels like that in a way. In, I don't know. But yeah, I, that I scene is like really like. They don't pull many punches, actually. Absolutely. And my friend was like, oh, Buffy's really scary and like makes her jump. And I was like, I get it. But in my head, my memory of Buffy is campy and cheesy. But then yeah. I rewatched it and I was like, oh, maybe it's less cheesy than I, than my memory tells me. No, to. I think because I remember, yeah. I remember the jokes. I remember the Xander yeah. puns and Buffy being like a California girl. I watched it in the original run with commercials, like back in the day. Me too, me too. Um, people who don't have that experience don't understand how deep, your love for something is when you're like, oh, I've got to get home. It's Tuesday at 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, and like, just I went to how painful the ending of season two was and the oh. wait for season three. Oh my God. That changed I mean, people. I mean, I, I, that broke <laughs> me. And the thing is, I was not even an Angel fan 
because Angel appeared on the scene. This is why the foil part with Spike is so great, too, because Angel appears and he's just sort of this, like, brooding, lurky vampire. I was like, say something besides, like, four words. Like, why are you here? What's happening? I was like, why is she going to fall for you? And Angel does become... He he becomes a better character, I think. But Spike is awesome from the moment he enters. And I am actually not a... I mean, this maybe can relate to, like, me and my problematic experience with vampires, but I'm not, like, a vampire girl. I'm, like, a hero girl. Like, I love... Uh-huh. I don't want their... I don't want all my heroes to have, like, some gritty, dark backstory. I was which like every hero feels like has to have right now. Like, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's important for a hero to have a struggle, but that's why Spike for me, it was like such a weird thing. Like I did like the Billy Idol thing and yes, everyone has like a little bit, like I like the bad boy, I guess. I don't know. From the eighties, it was very prominent, (laughs) but uh, I Spike for, I mean, vampires are murderers. And, and <laughs> worse. I mean, and so I was like, uh, I don't know. But what I loved about Spike is he comes on and he is like the big bad, right? He he has killed two slayers. Yes. Two slayers of color, which yes. one Chinese <laughs> slayer from the Boxer Rebellion and Nikki Wood, the 70s slayer, mm-hmm. um, which has a pretty great fight scene in like the New York City subway. And a lot of Spike's story is backstory. I mean, is like, told in flashback, which actually makes him, I think, the most flashed out character in the series, I more think, so than Angel. You know, what you're saying about you love a hero, um, and also that so many of these vampires come in and they have to have their dark, tortured backstory, and, you know, Angel certainly does. He is he is the epitome of a tortured soul. That is his curse. You know, he killed so many that he was cursed with a soul, and having to bear the knowledge of all of the evil that he had wrought in the world up until this point, and so he has to carry his burden around and be Broody McBruderton for the rest of his life. Um, But Spike, so he does crash onto the scene and he is this like big bad and he walks in and he's like, oh, and what I think is brilliant about season two is that they're setting up the anointed one as like this, um, the successor to the master who Buffy hands down is terrified of because he actually succeeded in killing her. And so the anointed is going to take that place and they're setting him up and setting him up and setting him up. Spike rolls in and he's like, I'm uninterested in this. I think I'll lock you in a cage and fry you in the sun. But Spike also continually through that episode shows us his one vulnerability mm-hmm. and it's Drusilla right. and he looks at her and you see the puppy dog eyes and you can already see that he's not the kind of guy who comes in with the tragic backstory. He's the underdog mm-hmm. and you sort of see that from the beginning um, and, and it makes and him sympathetic comes, in a weird way. It does. And it also comes out in the flashbacks because the thing is, I will, I'll argue that it wasn't just Drusilla that's his Achilles heel, but the concept of love and yes, loyalty. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Because, and she is like the embodiment of it at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, because in his past, in his human life, he was just this kind of like soulful, bad poet. And he's just like rejected, you know, by the one woman that he really loves and then he's just, you know, forlorn and depressed. And that's when Drusilla sires him. And so he forms the attachment with Drusilla. And I just think that that moment, like when we find out that part of the backstory and when you see it, even in his first episode with like how he is with Drusilla, you realize those are like those remnants of his humanity 
that will be his sort of touchstone and his what he constantly searching for love and acceptance throughout the entire series. And that's Absolutely. why he comes full circle. Because he wants something. And so many of the villains that we see come in, especially in season two and probably throughout, they don't want anything. Mm, um, right. But but Spike actually wants something and it drives all of his actions. I think one of my favorite moments is in the episode, um, the I Only Have Eyes For You, where Xander messes up his love spell and all of the women fall for him. And um, Spike at that moment is like, also realizing that Angel and Drusilla are getting closer than he than he would like, right. and so he's gonna he's gonna try to team up with Buffy right. to get rid of Angel because Angel is in jealous at that point. He's lost his soul. Right. He's evil. He lost his soul. Um, but, but, yeah. I was just so he because he had his one moment of true happiness when he slept with Buffy. Yes. Oh, bad that sex politics aside. Great. That's the, that team up is great. It's the first one. Cause he, he saves her from getting arrested. Yes. Yes. I love that moment because they, that conversation in particular is just like hilarious, but also makes perfect sense. And so he ends up going home. He's, he ends up being present for so many of these really important moments in Buffy's life. Like this moment when her, her mom finds out that she's a, a vampire slayer, yeah. like Spike is there for that. And he's, he's this witness to so many parts of her journey. Um, Can we talk about Joyce and Spike's relationship in the beginning and how like, yes. like, Oh, what a lovely young man. Like, <laughs> And he and the, he's like it, behind her making vampire fangs. The comedy that Spike brings to the yes, episode and that's the, the season is, three episode when he comes back when Angel is at the door, as at the mm-hmm. threshold, and yes. and he's like, I can't even do the gestures. He's like pretending to do like exaggerated vampire like gestures behind her. It's mm-hmm. hilarious. He's much funnier than Xander, even though I know Xander's. I, I can't even talk about Xander. No, no let's I not. can't handle it. Let's leave him alone. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't. I, Upon rewatching this, one, the worst episode of season two for me is Inca Mummy, the Inca mm. Mummy girl, because oh. I was watching that and I was like, oh my God, you guys made up a fake Inca story for this and then hired Gil uh, Birmingham, who's Jacob Black's father. Um, Wait. Oh my God. Oh, I didn't make that connection when I rewatched it. Because I saw him, I was like, that's Billy Black. Uh, you're right. Oh my god. Oh my wow. god. It's so all like all of us are everyone's interchangeable. Um, but I was like, wow, this is like in hindsight, this is exactly why I hate the Emperor's new group, but that's beside the point. Um, so back to Spike. I don't even know where to go from here because there's just so many directions that I feel like Spike can take on a journey. But I do have a quote from him about love, which when you guys were talking about his motivation. It's uh, when he's talking to her, he's talking to Buffy about Angel and he's like, you'll be in love till it kills you both. You'll fight and you'll shag and you'll hate each other till it makes you quiver, but you'll never be friends. Real love isn't brains, children. It's It's blood. blood. Mm -hmm. And that's what he comes back in season three, right? Hmm? That's yeah. a season three episode because he's only back for one episode in season three because he was never supposed to be a real character. But that is the moment. That is such an important Spike moment because that is when you know he's not just the big bad. He is the truth teller of Buffy. Yes. He sees the truth that Buffy cannot see. And we know at the end of that episode, she finally sees it because he tells her. And that's when she has that conversation with Angel at the end. And she's like, tell me you don't love me. That's the only way this 
work or whatever. I mean, that was never going to work, but he is such a truth teller. And that's like part of his journey. Cause he's like the big bad. Cause he goes from there to really the anti-hero, but I'm going to argue that he has, he has his own hero journey. Um, and his world, I mean, we enter his world when he's already part of the extraordinary world, but what he always wants to get back to is just to be the man, like a man. And that's what, and Buffy is his magical helper to sort of get there. Absolutely. He also occupies this really interesting space because he's one of the only characters who keeps bridging back and forth between, you know, Angel spins off to his own show in season four and he goes down to L.A. and opens like a detective agency. Um, I've actually been watching some of those episodes now that I've <laughs> that I've been doing so, a rewatch. So bizarre because I was like, wait, this is just it ends up being about a law firm. I don't understand. <laughs> Wolfram and Hart. <laughs> and and it, it's such a, I love it, especially because I'm such a Cordelia Chase fan. So. I really, really love watching her arc. Um, pause. Angel, are we pausing? No, I only want to pause to say that, Natalie, you love the ditzy girls in these vampire shows because you also love Carolyn Forbes from uh, The Vampire Diaries. Correct. They're the same archetype. Do you have a vampire archetype? I do. I do. Absolutely. And if Cordelia Chase was turned into a vampire ever instead of what she ends up being, I'm not going to get into that. But that that was such a mess. I know. It was a mess. Caroline was. He has uh, sex with Angel's son. uh, We said we weren't going to go there. Zoraida. I had a really passionate moment. Okay. Yeah, you did. Yeah, that that whole thing was weird. Angel was really weird. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Caroline becomes a better version of herself when she's a vampire and a less annoying version. Mm-hmm. But think of like, I actually, I think her counterpart would actually be more like Harmony. Yes. Mm. I think so too. Spike Sires. Wait, Spike was Harmony yeah. Sires, isn't he? Yes. But she, no. no, she it's gets not? sired at graduation. And I, oh, I yeah, don't know that right, we ever right, find I'm out sorry, who sires but they're her. Just boyfriend, girlfriend, yeah. again, yeah. bad boyfriend, yeah. really mm-hmm. bad boyfriend. But, um, She's a little bit like Carolyn, but she doesn't get better. She just remain, remains annoying, but she does have like that awesome, like ridiculous fight with Xander where they're just like swatting at each other. Yes, I do love their their swatting fight. I mean, I think Harmony is a fair comparison. Um, and Harmony is sort of the more sexist uh, version of that of that tr- of that character arc. Um, whereas we see Cordelia and um, Caroline are given room to grow. Like you said, they become better versions of themselves, which I think is really important because they sort of combat the stereotype of the vapid teenage girl in a really important way. And I actually feel like a more apt comparison is Spike because he starts Mm -hmm. off as this sort of loser kid underdog and he, he is striving to become the better version of himself. And that is, you know, to greater and lesser success over the, couple of <laughs> seasons. I mean, I think, I think Zoraida, you said this in one of the earlier episodes about how what you are as a person is just amplified as a vampire. Yeah. And I think that fits with Spike because those things that you can see, and it's all, so much of it is just delivered in flashback that, that loyalty, that weird relationship with his mom, which, <laughs> but what he's searching for is just love and acceptance. He wants someone to love him as he is. Mm-hmm. And he never fully really has that. And in all of his relationships, you can sort of see that like his relationships, I mean, are sort of like, I mean, he is a tool as a vampire, but he also, he's using a lot of like with harmony, like that's clearly not, he's not trying to get towards that goal, but she's just sort of there for him. Like as 
you know, plaything or also maybe to sometimes he uses people to try to get Buffy jealous, like with mm-hmm. Anya. Um, and, but he, I always feel like he's, he has this, he called it the spark when he refers to his soul in, um, season six, seven, season seven, sorry. Seven. The spark is the soul. He's always searching for that spark. And then, and this is why I just, one thing about the spark in his soul and like going back to the angel foil thing with him being in soul. I know there's always like this whole rivalry, like Spike versus Angel. You know, it's like Jacob and my Edward. 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 <laughs> I don't know how I forgot that name. Um, but the thing is, you know, Angel has a soul, but he he was cursed with his soul, and Spike has to earn his back very painfully. Yes, that's he true. Goes to that's the demon trials to get to get his soul back because he wants to be better for Buffy because he's done like horrible things but honestly Angel's done really really horrible things and like why does he ever have to really pay for like what he did to poor Jenny Calendar the digi witch or whatever the digital techno witch techno that's what it is I was like what is that yeah no you're absolutely right he just Angel just sort of he I mean he pays in that he Buffy sends him to hell uh and he is in hell for in human years like a period of time but in you know Buffy goes runs away she becomes Anne it's this whole thing and then Angel comes back because he's given a purpose because we want to do a spinoff and have Angel's right. Angel the TV show and Wolfram and Hart but he like pays in that he's tortured in hell for a period of time but it's not specifically for Jenny it's for everything it's for everything right. that he did um, and, and because it, he. Go, go, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, he's also, we could talk a little about consent because that's like a big part of this. But one thing is, and I think Spike says this actually an angel because he says, Spike says to Angel, Drusilla sired me, but it's you that turned me into a monster because Angel was so brutal and evil. Mm -hmm. And Spike really turns that way after he tries to turn his mother, he does turn his mother into a vampire because she's dying of TB, and then his mother, as a vampire, totally rejects him. It's yeah, brutal. and mocks him. So, yeah, and mocks him, and is just like, and so his mom is a terrible product of the Victorian era, or whatever era they're in. Right. Floofy dresses and old English uh, accents. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that with... Angel, I do think Angel suffers, and I know that I'm an Angel apologist for a lot, but I think that Angel was always constructed to give Buffy the sort of tragic story where she can never have it all because it, you know, that's just her lot in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but Spike is is brought to her as sort of uh, an equal for a period of time, and then the showrunners like ruined it by you know in season six. Um, by doing whatever, you know, what they did. But I think that Angel, uh, sorry, Spike brings a lot more, brings something completely different to Buffy in that they have an actual conversation. Whereas Angel, as much as I love him and think he's this like beautiful brooding, you know, he literally, he's holding her little Mr. Mr. Piggy or whatever. And he's like, he tells her that he's lurking, but they can never have a conversation because it's always only physical. And even though Buffy's relationship with Spike is also physical, they share a lot more in the interim uh, by being enemies. Right. And you know that he, he, just like you said, they talk to each other. I actually will argue that Spike knows Buffy better than anyone. 
Um, because he has that sort of that truth teller kind of thing. He always is, he always is candid and he's always like telling everyone like duh, why don't you see what's happening in front of you? Like when, for example, like when Willow is like falling apart, when, um, when Oz leaves and Buffy and Giles are like, I think she's doing okay. And then Spike's like, what's wrong with you guys? She's hanging on by a bloody thread. Like, can you not see he's like i'm like you know my an unbeating heart vampire like who can see like the pain of this because he can he can feel he has this like sympathy for the pain of others like there's that's why he why he also helps dawn like he becomes like a caretaker for dawn and there's this moment god i can't remember what episode it is when dawn is like upset and he he reaches out to put uh, like a hand on her head kind of in this very paternal or older brotherly kind of moment. And then he like kind of withdraws. Cause I think he's also sort of like, wait, I'm, I can't get too close. Cause I always hurt, but I just think that spike has, it's just what you said. Like they obviously have a physical relationship too. Um, violently physical, <laughs> um, um, noise. Yes. Okay, but they do, but they do talk to each other. And that's like when, I don't know. There's just so many, like in season five, when I think that's when he realizes that he season five is when he realizes he's in love with Buffy. I think, I think so. And and that's Mm -hmm. like when, when she invites him back into the house, do you remember when they were taking on, um, glory and, and so two things that he does like there, he like, he, he allows himself to be tortured without revealing secrets about Dawn that she is the key and he know because he knows it will kill Buffy. And that's that moment when he's like completely like totally like destroyed and bloodied and beaten where Buffy like gives him this like little kiss. It's like their first kiss. Yeah. That's not either a dream or the Buffy bot. Oh, that, that moment well. undoes me entirely. Oh my God. I, you know what? There were so many moments where, you know, it's right. It goes to what you were saying earlier where there's like so much sort of camp and jokiness about Buffy, but on this rewatch, I was like, why am I getting choked up so much? I mean, just because of the, like, yeah. like quarantine and because I'm getting old, like what is <laughs> happening? <laughs> I think that's really important though. This, I, as you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago about, um, sort of the atonement of, you know, angel. It's, it's a hard line. He either has his soul or he doesn't. And when he doesn't have his soul, there is no humanity left in him. He is categorically evil and he will behave as dismally as we expect every vampire to. But Spike has retained that spark. Like he has always retained that connection to humanity that allows him to be the sympathetic vampire. Um, And so he cares, he, he cares throughout. And what I think is really interesting about the Spike Buffy relationship is that as she, you know, she has this more pure relationship with Angel because she's so young in in one right. way. Um, she's inexperienced. She, yeah. Yeah. She's, she's so young and, you know, watching him be cursed and uncursed is, is traumatic for her. Side note, I do feel like Xander in season two is the one person who tries to keep holding Angel accountable for all yes, of his past is. misdeeds. Yes, he is. So like he's the one only mark. one who will say that is the yes. one good thing that Xander has. Because with Jenny especially, he's like, hello, have how we forgotten about this? And they're all like, well, he didn't have a soul. Right. And so the, they can like move him from one category to the next. But Spike can't be because he, in, in many ways, is this like integrated monster from Go um, who's working towards actual atonement, working toward um, being worthy of Buffy. But I feel like what we see over his whole arc is as 
he is working toward becoming more human. Buffy is is getting more monstrous. Yeah, so and he's the one who points it out to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they come to this like middle ground meeting place, which is in some ways like the most stable point for any kind of relationship to form on. But like you say, he's a truth teller and she needs that because she has yeah. so many people around her who are helpers, um, but who definitely see the world from like right. a bias. Um, at that end, um, at the end, in that last episode, oh, I can't remember if it's the very last episode, but that moment in season five when she invites him back into the house after she's like cast him out of the house and he says, I know you never love me. I know I'm a monster but you treat me like a man. And that means something because she is the one who will see through. She's the one who sees what you're saying is that integrated piece of him. Like, and when he comes back after being insulted, she's also the one who says to when Giles and um, principal Wood are like, we got to get rid of this dude. She's like, I know what he can be. And she sees what he can be, but he also sees what she can be. Um, and he basically saves the day. I mean, he literally saves the day, but also when she's kicked out in season seven from the den of potentials, right. Faith yep. And like everyone else, he's the one who goes to her and gives her the strength and is like, I've seen what you are and I love how you try and how you are this amazing woman and you're not perfect, mm-hmm. but you are the one. And and she says to him, you gave me, you gave me your strength that night. And that's why I could come back. And those last episodes of the, of the entire series are the ones where we see Spike finally, I mean, they are sad. <laughs> we they are super sad. Yeah. I love them. I do. I do love, I do love those scenes. And I love that he is given a chance, you know, he's given a chance for redemption. I I think that, you know, season six was the laziest writing for me, uh, as, as a complete series, um, in, in the, in the way that, you know, the only way to make Spike a monster was to have him like sexually harass Buffy when, uh, you know, when he's, um, when she's vulnerable, which I don't think that the character that we have known, for six, six episodes would have like, that's, that wasn't, that was like to me atypical because he has had such reservation and like complete control over his actions for so long that like, it just felt like an easy ploy. Um, and that was just, that's really disappointing. And that goes into like, uh, how, how we create characters and how, how we, uh, maintain this believability of the, of the people, of the people that we have created on the pages, specifically vampires who have this like weird line when it comes to, uh, relationships and love and what we're willing to do for it. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think Spike, yes, I hated that too. I was so enraged by that. Cause I mean, and I guess they, they tried to make that like the tipping point, which sends him to go get his sends him to go get his soul um, Mm -hmm. or to fight for his soul because he's so horrified by what he's done to Buffy. But it also, I was like, it did feel like this is lazy and I'm We're just going to do this. And I just don't want a sexual assault should never be used that way. Yeah. It's so disappointing Um, when lazy writing gets in the way of a really phenomenal character like that. Especially when the show itself is supposed to be like, look, feminism, but also Joss Whedon. So I know it's so hard. <laughs> you know, the, the one last thing I want to say about Spike and the truth telling is a part of the reason why those last few episodes were so for the Spike moment were so moving is because, you know, they at the end of the Spike and Buffy are the ones who believe in each other. 
And that strength, that bond, whether you call it love or whatever you want to call it, is what is able to propel them forward and move them toward this final, you know, huge battle against the first evil where Spike sacrifices himself. And in that moment becomes the champion that Buffy believes that he can be. And it's through her strength. And even at the end, so this is a total spoiler, but at the end when he, when Buffy knows he is going to like destroy himself and he says like, I'm going to see this through to the end. This is for me to clean up. I have to do this. And she says, I love you. And takes his hand and he says, no, you don't, but thanks for saying it. And that Mm -hmm. moment, he wants to go out on the truth. Yeah. He doesn't want to take the lie in. And he is the one who knows he has to clean it up. Yep. And he can deal at that point in his arc, he can handle that truth. At so many other points in his development and his character arc, that, that kind of truth, knowing that would have like, killed him he would have been immobilized he wouldn't have been able to move forward with his his mission which is to clean it up and he was not like the joseph campbell like hero i know it was right you have like i also like joseph campbell's hero journey but i also i use it in contemporary fiction which people don't realize enough how much it can be used in contemporary fiction oh absolutely agree with that thing like where i'll just say this last thing where campbell has this quote i think in hero of a thousand faces where he says something about um like following the, the thread of the hero path. And he says, and where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a God. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. And where we had thought to travel outwards, we shall come to the center of, of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. And I felt like that just encompasses Spike's journey. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Really beautifully. Oh, that's such an amazing note to end on Spike. Um, we would love for you to talk a little bit about your short story in Vampires Never Get Old. So I, this short story is like the most different thing I've ever written. And I love you guys for letting me write this. Thank you so much. It is inspired by obviously vampires, but I never obviously see Indian vampires <laughs> really anywhere. I mean, there are very few vampires of color in anything. Um, but I, Twilight was actually an, an important book for me. It sort of kind of propelled me to write YA. Um, and there are this little tiny seeds of it in my very first book, which are kind of hidden, I guess, to anyone but me. And so when you guys asked me to write this vampire thing, I was like, what would I do for Indian vampires? And then I remember reading this fantastic book by Mohsen Hamid called, um, how to get filthy rich in rising Asia. And it was written in second person and it was like written as a handbook. And I remember I picked it up like thinking second person seems like such a weird thing to write in. How can you have any kind of emotionality with it. And I was so moved by that book. And I was like, I wonder if I could write something in second person. And then I was, when I started thinking about Indian vampires, I was thinking, well, we don't know anything about Indian vampires. And there's so many things in sort of Western vampire tropes that would not fit in India. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like for example, holy water is very Catholic. Most Crosses. Indians are not Catholic. How would this work? Would they, would they be like, eh? and garlic, we consume garlic like so much, like that wouldn't bother us. Um, so I wanted to write this sort of handbook, like what would a, a new Indian or Desi South Asian vampire be thinking? What would they contend with? What would the questions be that they have? And I sort of wanted it to be tongue in cheek, but I also think that vampirism is such a perfect like metaphor for colonialism. And so I, I wanted to sort of combine all of those into this short story, which you guys let me do. 
Oh my gosh. And you did it so beautifully. I remember the first time reading through it and we were like, we were laughing out loud because it's just so clever, but also our minds were, were being blown because of the way that you layer vampirism and colonialism on top of one another. It just, I mean, it was like, oh, that's so obvious. The metaphor is right there. Um, but I'd never really thought about it before until I read your story. It's with British colonialism so well. I think you could apply it to like just colonialism generally, but especially Mm -hmm. with the British. Absolutely. And I think that being able to have that because there are not, there definitely are not enough Brown vampires that are coded as Brown uh, because it's one thing to say like, Oh, here's a black vampire. Here's a Latino vampire, but let's just give it all the same uh, European mythology. And, 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 and even, even if let's say in a book, vampires do come from England, it's still a, a virus. It's still like vi- colonization is a virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, imperial powers are viruses on, on the host. And um, one, the only other author who I do think in YA really tackled that was Cassandra Clare when she gave Simon consideration of being Jewish when tackling him being a vampire, right? Yeah, he. You guys talk about this process in the Danielle episode. You you kind of unpack this a little bit. I thought that was yeah. such a fantastic episode. So if you guys all haven't listened to that one, please do because you really unpack that a little further. And it's it's really true because we have little examples in of you know POC vampires, but they're basically like you know a vampire of color who has I don't know black hair and mm. chocolate colored skin. I mean, I don't know coffee cafe au lait skin or something like that. <laughs> I really liked Danielle's metaphor of painting the roses red was a really strong one for me. Abs- where yeah, absolutely. Flapping a skin on and yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not d- diving any I, deeper into that. I know. Yeah. Well, oh, you man. know, when I read twilight, I remember thinking like, I wonder what this would be like for Indian vampires. So this, this idea goes back so long ago because twilight came out in 2005. Five. Yes, five. 2005. I didn't probably read it in 2005. I read it a few years later. But um, I remember thinking like how it would almost be comical because like the the Hindu vampires would be like, but we're vegetarians. This is like completely wrong. <laughs> and then the Muslim vampires are going to be like, no matter what, they keep calling us terrorists. We're just we're just like minding our own business, like doing this own thing. And like James would be like, I can't even like kill a, a mosquito. How do you expect me to do this? But then there would also be this kind of... Um, you know, like, I think Indian culture has these interesting contradictions. Like, we've written the Kama Sutra, but we also have this kind of, like, prudishness, which you could see in, like, the early Bollywood, like, 70s and yeah. 80s Bollywood, where you can't kiss or, like, whatever. And that could also be, because I think there's also, in Western vampire lore, there's a lot of promiscuity or, like, sexuality is an important part of being a vampire. But what if it wasn't? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just think it's interesting to, and I mean, I don't investigate every one of those things in this short story, but if I was writing it into a novel, I would. Well, you certainly point to many of these things in a very, like, I think many readers are going to find um, a new, new way to imagine vampires through your story. They're, they're going to be introduced to a lot of questions that maybe have been taken for granted um, or have been westernized and whitewashed in our Um, in our literature canon of vampirism. (laughs) So we are very excited for readers to discover uh, your story and expand their, their understanding of vampires through it. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to review, subscribe, and pre-order Vampires Never Get Old. <laughs>